All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll continue in our scripture reading and our sermon for today. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word, I pray that your inerrant and eternal truths may uh, find its way deep into our hearts and our souls and affect not only our minds, but our whole whole beings, that we may then be lured back to you through the cross of Christ. Help us, Father, remind us again of why it is we're here on this earth. What's the point of all of this? And I pray that as we open up your word, we're reminded again and become ministers of your gospel, better ministers, more long-lasting and faithful ministers of your gospel truth in this city that we love. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. All right, friends, uh, today we're going to be continuing in our series through the book of Acts, which if you've been with us for the past few months or so, you would know that the book of Acts is mainly about how the early church grew, right? You saw Jesus' disciples going to different places in different areas. You see them sharing the good news of the cross to different people in different places. And today, in Acts chapter 14, we see Jesus' disciples going to two different regions called Iconium and Lyconia. I think that's how you pronounce it, Iconium and Lyconia. Now, it's really important for you to know the background of these two regions or these two areas because the differences between the two is what's kind of going to drive the point of the passage forward, okay? So let me just explain um, uh, about these two different places, Iconium and Lyconia. There are two different places filled with two very different demographics of people that had two different religious beliefs and two different cultures. Iconium, the first region that we'll see, was a medium-sized urban city. Okay, that's a known historical fact. Um, it's filled with mostly educated, affluent people. And we'll see that in the passage too. Later when we read verse 4, you'll see that Iconium was actually described as a city. And there's also a synagogue there. Uh, and, and, and most cities back then had synagogues in it. And more, more, it's described as a synagogue as being filled with a great number of people, okay? And cities back then had synagogues that was populated. So we can say that the people in Iconium was filled with the urban religious, okay? The urban religious. Now, Lyconia, the second place Paul and Barnabas goes to in our passage, it was almost the exact opposite. Lyconia was more of a suburban area, and it was filled with less educated people, less affluent people, Later in the passage, we're going to read it. You'll see that the people there still believe in these mystical Nordic gods, like Zeus and Hermes. And they also spoke in a very peculiar rural dialect. In verse 11, you'll, you'll see that it's, it's called Lyconian. So, if Iconium is filled with the urban religious, Lyconia was filled with the rural or suburban mystics. Okay? And this is unbelievably relevant for us who live in Jakarta today. Why? Because, friends, do we not today in this one city have both demographics living here? Do we not have in Jakarta both the urban religious and the suburban mystics living side by side, doing commerce, in community? And if we want to be 
effective in any way at all, Covenant City Church. As gospel communicators here in the city, we got to pay attention to what God has to say here in this passage today, okay? Let's get into it. This is the Word of God, taken from Acts chapter 14, verse 1 to 20, Paul and Barnabas's missionary journey to both Iconium and Lyconia. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some side with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystria, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying, in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. But even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Thus says the Lord. Now, let me give you a, a quick preface. Before we usually study narrative literature in, Bi in the Bible, a literature genre that's a storyline, okay, like, like this one, usually we do it chronologically, right? Meaning that we preach it from beginning to end according to the flow of the story. That's how you get the accurate kind of picture of what the story's about. But for this one, because these two events in Iconium and Lyconia mirror each other in, in a really parallel way, we're instead going to take a look at the parallel themes and events that happened um, in both cities, the parallel events that both Bar Paul and Barnabas experienced in both of these regions, okay? And then we're going to learn it that way. All right. If we, Covenant City Church, if we want to last any amount of time at all as effective gospel witnesses in this city, there's at least three things we can learn from this passage. One, you got to remember that you cannot change hearts. Two, 
you got to apply gospel truth according to people's idols. And three, you got to let Christ, not results, drive you. Okay? We'll get back to these three as I, as I continue in the sermon. Let's start with our first point. You got to remember that it's not your job to change hearts. The first mirroring parallel themes that we see happen both in Iconium and in Lyconia is that in both of these places, there was really nothing else Paul and Barnabas could have done to make the gospel any more clearer and convincing to the people there. They've done everything they could. Look at verse 1. It says that Paul and Barnabas spoke in such a way to where many people believed. And believed here, we're not sure if it means saving faith, but at least they're really convinced, right? So they were convincing. And on top of that, verse 3 says that God even did signs and wonders through them. In other words, God did miracles through them. Now, why were miracles done back then? Not to impress people, not to gather or woo a crowd. Miracles were given by God to the apostles back then to kind of stamp them, to say that these are my messengers and that their message is from me. Okay? The gospel is true. The Christ they're sharing about is real, and the cross really did wash away your sins. There's nothing else they could have done. <laughs> it's convincing the gospel truly is true. And this also happened, skip to verse 10, in Lyconia. What did you see Paul and Barnabas do there to a crippled man? They healed him. Another miracle happened, right? So both the urban religious in Iconium and the suburban mystic in Lyconia here, they both got what probably was one of the best gospel presentations ever available in the history of the whole world. This is Paul and Barnabas we're talking about, okay? And just in case their words weren't good enough, God hit them with a miracle. Surely, at this point, they'd believe, right? There's nothing else that could have been done. Wrong. They both rejected the gospel still in both places. Now, here's the difference. The urban religious in Iconium, they rejected the gospel in a more savvy way. And the rural mystics, the suburban mystics, did it in a more rowdy way, okay? But it was gospel rejection still. Look at verse 2. How did the urban religious in Iconium reject the gospel? It says, by stirring up the Gentiles and poisoning their minds against the brothers, it says. Now, the word poison here in verse 2 refers to the act of defaming someone's character in order to um, discredit their, their message, Okay, it's a character attack. That's what poisoning of the mind here means. And it's a pretty savvy argumentative technique, by the way. Where do you see this happen a lot? You see this happen a lot in presidential campaigns, right? Where one candidate would attack the other person's not uh, uh, opinions or, 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 or systems or uh, rules, but they would attack the other person's character and hope that when they attack the other person's character, they will also discredit their argument. If you went to college and you took Logic 101, this is called the ad hominem logical fallacy, where you attack the person's character. It's a very savvy way to kind of win an argument. But now, look at how the rural mystics in Lyconia rejected the gospel. Very differently. When they saw Paul and Barnabas heal the crippled man in verse 10, it kind of threw them into this mob-like, frantic idol worship. Look at verse 10. They said, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So 
Barnabas here was the older one. He probably had a long white beard or something. And that's probably why they thought, this guy Zeus, he's the big dog Nordic god, right? And Paul, you see, was the one who was doing all the speaking, all the talking. And Hermes back then was known as Zeus's messenger. That's probably why they thought Paul was Hermes. <laughs> so they saw the do a miracle, and they're like, Zeus and Hermes is here. And it's kind of comedic, because Paul and Barnabas had no idea what was going on. They were speaking in Lyconian, verse 10 says, in their own dialect. So they are probably just like, what in the world's going on? They had no idea what was happening until verse 11 says that the priest of Zeus brought a cow their way to sacrifice. And then they're like, oh, okay. Um, don't do that. We're not Zeus. We're not Hermes. And all of a sudden, they caught on to what's going on. And the rejection, you see, it looks different. One used educated jargon. The other used this idol worship frenzy. But it's rejection nonetheless. And this is how it informs us today, Christians who live in an urban city that perhaps have uh, many of these kinds of rejections coming our way. Because it's, it's really tempting for us, isn't it, Christians, to think that on one hand, in order for the urban affluent, the modern urban affluent, in order for them to receive Christ, we just got to show them the more spiritual side of life right? We got to kind of wake them up from their modern scientific slumber, from their modern scientific worldview, and make them believe in spiritual things. Then, then maybe, you know, they'll receive the gospel. That's the answer. But then on the other side, we can also think that the answer for the suburban mystic is to educate them. If we can just educate them in true logic and real ethics, then, then these rural mystics will find the errors of their ways and receive the gospel. But you see what this passage is saying? It's saying that neither spiritualizing or educating is a silver bullet. At the end of the day, both sides still rejected the gospel. The educated rejected the gospel in their own savvy way and the mystic in their own rowdy way. If someone's heart, Jesus says in John 3, is not born again, if the Holy Spirit has not woken us up from our spiritual deadness, it doesn't matter what we do. We will use every tool available to us to reject the gospel, whether through educated jargon or through mystical frenzies. Either way, both of these people wanted to stone him. So here's what God's saying to us, CCC. Remember, rejection isn't necessarily failure. Paul and Barnabas did all they can, and it still didn't work out for them. Ephesians 2 says that people are dead in their sin, as were we dead in our sin. And you know what brought you to the light? Not some pastor who shared some kind of amazing gospel presentation, not some Christian summer who shared the gospel with you, God used those things, but at the end of the day, it was the Holy Spirit that regenerated your heart, and it's Him and Him alone that deserves the credit for your salvation. It's God's job. However, as we move on to our second point, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do our part in being persuasive. 
okay? Second point, just because a silver bullet answer doesn't exist, it doesn't mean that we're not called our, to do our part to artfully apply gospel truth according to people's idols and to people's hearts, okay? Second point. Another parallel, this is really interesting, you see about what Paul and Barnabas did in uh, Iconium and Lyconia. Paul presented the gospel in two very different ways to these two different groups of people. Look at verse 3. To the people of Iconium, look at what part of the gospel Paul emphasized. Verse 3, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace. Paul and Barnabas bore witness to what? The word of God's grace. God's grace was the emphasis there when he was speaking to the urban religious in Iconium. Why do you think that is? Why would you want to emphasize grace to the urban religious? Well, let's break that down for a second. What does man-made religion promise you? Man-made religion promises that salvation can be earned by our good deeds. Salvation can be earned by our religiosity. Salvation can be achieved by our own personal ability to obey God's laws. So, in other words, the idol or the false god of the Iconian urban religious was the idol or the false god of self-righteousness. And by emphasizing God's grace, Paul is specifically applying the gospel to them. He's telling them that, look, you think your self-righteousness can give you what you long for? You think your religiosity can get you what you want? Heaven? It can't. The false God of good works cannot give you what you desire. True salvation is received by grace, not achieved by personal performance. That's the gospel. Christ has died and given you what your idol claims it can through the cross. It's by grace alone. But now, to the Lyconians, it's interesting. Paul had a totally different gospel presentation. He actually never got specifically to the grace part at all. Some people say that he was cut off by the frenzy, but either way, he didn't start off with grace, with the gospel immediately. He started with something else. Look at verses 15 to 17. What did Paul say to the uh, rural mystics in Lyconia? When he saw a cow being brought his way, <laughs> Paul said, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things of Nordic gods to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. You see, different presentation because they had a different idol, a different false god. Let me get into that. Back then, people who believed in these Nordic gods, like Zeus or Hermes, they believed that there was a very specific god to sacrifice to in order to meet a very specific longing. So, for example, if you longed for rain, you would sacrifice to the god of rain named Freyr. If you wanted a nice, long, sunny day at the beach and you wanted to make sure that the sun stayed up, you would sacrifice to the god of the sun named Sol. 
if you wanted a big harvest that year, you would sacrifice to the god of food named Shremnir. If you wanted to increase your gladness, there's actually a god of happiness named Nepsdotir. I practiced those pronunciations for a long time just for you. <laughs> you want what you long for. You appease the gods with sacrifice. Paul knew that. And that's why his gospel presentation was very specific. He's saying, no, no, no. These idols, these false gods are vain, he said in verse 15. They're dead. They can't deliver what they promised. There's only one true living God, Paul says, who made what? The heaven and the earth, who controls the rain, you see, who gives you different seasons throughout the year, who satisfies your heart with food and gives you produce and gladness. Don't sacrifice to Shremnir or Freyr or whatever other vain idol you have. They can't deliver what you think they promise, you see. Here's a point. Paul tells the urban religious that their idol of self-righteousness can't deliver the longing of salvation it promises, and he tells the mystics that their idols of Nordic gods can't deliver the things that they promise. When you leave this room today, I want you to take a look around the city. Take a good look and tell me what idols be here. What false gods are making promises out there? What are people sacrificing to in order to fulfill their deepest needs and longings? Many sacrifice their dignity to the god of romance. Many sacrifice their integrity to the false god of money. Many sacrifice their health to the God of image. Many sacrifice their careers, I'm sorry, their families, their children's even, to the God of career. Don't be fooled. There are tons of false gods out there promising tons of things, and we all struggle with it, even you and I, sitting in this room every day. So what do you do? Do you just go out there and attack the idols? Not quite, that's not enough. Look at what Paul did here in verse 17. He not only identified the idols, he spotted the longings, the deep longings that lies behind these vain idols. What you want is rain. You want sun. You want harvest. You want food. You want gladness. That's what Paul specifically mentioned in verse 17. That's what, that's what you long for, isn't it, Lyconians? And then he says, only the living God can give you that. Look, when someone's willing to give up everything, and perhaps we've been in this position, give up, I mean everything, to worship the God of romance. Think about the deeper longing there. What does this person really long for and desire? It's to be loved, to be cherished, to no longer feel invisible. <laughs> When someone lies and cheats or steals and sacrifices their integrity for the false god of career, what's their deeper longing? Why are people so addicted to career advancement? Because they want approval. They want confirmation of their value and worth. Nah, that's not, that's not why I work, Tez. I don't work for flimsy emotional longings like that. I work for money. Yes, because you long for security and peace 
There's a longing there. Don't be fooled. When someone sacrifices their health, both physically and emotionally, to appease the God of image and to reach that number on the weighing scale, it's because they long to be desirable. It's not enough to attack the idol. You've got to identify the longings and then, like Paul, show them that only the living God can give them these things. Only Christ can fulfill it. You want love? What better love is there than a friend who lays down his life for you? Jesus asks in John 15, why would you pursue a kind of romance that leads you away from that ultimate love? You want to be approved? Through Christ, the guy who owns the universe calls you son and daughter. Why would you pursue any other approval that'll lead your heart away from that one? You want peace? You think your money can give you that? Let me ask you, has your sense of peace directly increased on a parallel level as your assets increased? <laughs> has that been your experience? Or has there been more anxiety, more worry? What if, what if peace is not found in accumulating your own riches, but in knowing that the richest being in the universe became poor for you? Onto a cross so that now you can look at death itself in the eye and say, all you have permission to do now is take me to my Father in heaven. What if that's peace? You want to be desirable? Don't crush your body to be desirable. Jesus already crushed his for you. Identify the longings. You want to know why? You've been fading, fighting, I've been fighting the same old idol since forever. You know why? They just seem like they won't die. It's because we haven't brought the gospel deep enough into our hearts. We haven't seen how Christ is the only one who can deliver the promises that these vain idols claim to be able to deliver. Paul knew that. He did, which is why he tailored the gospel message accordingly to each person's need. And it's also the reason why he was able to keep serving God and share the gospel even though he keeps failing over and over again, which leads us to our last point. But before that, let me just summarize, okay? If we, friends, want to be effective, long-lasting gospel ministers in the city that we love, one, you got to remember it's not your job to, to change hearts. You can't do that, okay? However, two, don't then let that be an excuse for you to not try and share the gospel in the most engaging way you can to apply truths specifically to people's longings and idols, okay? And lastly, in order to last, as gospel ministers here, you gotta let Christ, not results, drive you onward. Let's go to our last point and see our last parallel between what happened in Iconium and Lyconia. So Paul and Barnabas here, arguably the best missionary duo that ever lived. What was their success rate in these two trips? Not very good. At the end of the first trip to Iconium, verse 5 said, the people wanted to stone him. And at the end of their trip to Lyconium, verse 19 says, the people actually did stone him. <laughs> and they stopped stoning him, not because of the kindness of their hearts, but because they thought he was dead. Now, 
okay, if CCC sends a missionary somewhere, right, and we support this missionary to plant a church somewhere, and you know missionaries, they would send you email updates and stuff like that every now and then. And one day we got an email report from them saying, the month of April was a hard one. Everybody wanted to stone me. We'd probably be like, come home, <laughs> you know, don't stay there. That's a failure. And look, okay, it could be the missionary's fault, okay? It could be our fault that we haven't done our homework in sharing the gospel winsomely. Uh, we haven't contextualized it well. We haven't done it in a way that's engaging to their hearts and their longings and all this kind of stuff that Paul did here. But what we see in our passage today is that a lack of numerical results isn't always the gospel sharer's fault. Like Paul and Barnabas here, sometimes you've done all you can. You've explained Christ clearly, precisely, right, according to their longings, persuasively in both word and in deed, and yet people still want to stone you. Look, if you're a Christian here and you're, and you're living for the Lord, right, you're born again in Christ, in any field at all, not just as full-time ministers or as church staff or as Bible study leaders and community group leaders, like many of you are here, but, but anyone, any Christian trying to serve God anywhere, if earthly numerical results is your why, if that's your main driving factor, you'll be discouraged real quickly. Jesus himself said that the number of people who find the gospel attractive in this world are very few. Narrow is the road, he said. And if the road's narrow, that means more, there are more people in this world that will find the gospel repulsive than attractive or else the, world, the, the road would not have been described as narrow. So you might be sitting here today and you're teachers at a Christian school and you're not seeing as many of your students really catching on to the gospel as you would like. Or you might be trying to share Christ in your workplace and you're not seeing people come to know the Lord there. You might be a stay-at-home parent and you're trying to share the gospel to your kids, but all you find is pushback and resistance. You might be a son or a daughter trying to share the gospel to your parents, and you're not seeing any results at all. You might be a Bible study leader, a community group leader, a full-time minister, and the people in your Bible studies and community groups aren't really, they could care less about Christ. Fine-tune your approach if you need to, but look, if numerical pragmatic result is the thing that's keeping you going, you're going to be get, you're going to get tired really quickly. Paul's ministry failed twice, back to back, but he kept going. Why? Because he wasn't in love with the results. He was in love with Jesus. That's why. Speaking of idols, you know what the false god of numerical results promises us? It promises us validation, affirmation, approval, acceptance. But just like the false gods of this Nordic era, the god of pragmatic results in whatever area in your life, it cannot deliver what it claims to offer. Look at how quickly things turned for Paul. In verse 18, the crowds were worshiping them for being gods, and in one verse, in verse 19, they were stoning him. But Paul wasn't discouraged. He got up. He kept living his Christian life. Why? Because he wasn't living for the false god of results. He was living for a different god, a better god. 
The false god of, num of numerical results, of pragmatic results, says that if you sacrifice to it, it'll give you what you long for. But the god Paul served on the cross said the exact opposite. The Paul God served on the cross said that in order to give you what you long for, I will sacrifice myself for you. Paul kept going for Jesus, not to experience momentary affirmation or approval, but because the one and only living God has been rejected and disproved by the whole world in order to embrace him. That's why he keeps going, because he's in love with the true God who died for him. What are we in love with, CCC? Why are we doing all this? Why do we put in all this effort, week in and week out, to worship and do this? Staff, elders, deacons, music team, children's ministry team, Sunday morning service teams, mercy ministry team, community group leaders, Bible study leaders, Boston Indonesia church plant team, members. What's our why? Why do we endure? Why do we keep going? To get big? To serve the God of numerical results? That comes and goes. We won't last if that's our why. Do this because Christ is worth every second and every ounce of your energy and time. Do this because the king of this world has given the whole world for you. Do this because you're in love with the one who died in your place. That's the only thing that'll make us last. So keep going whether in your own personal attempts to share the gospel and to represent Christ in whatever area you're in. Keep going. Find ways to communicate the gospel artfully, specifically, clearly, faithfully to your friends, families, coworkers, students, and to the city. But do it for him. Do it for the only why that kept Paul going and the only why that'll keep you and I going no matter what. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to not imagine that as these Jews pursued Paul all the way from Iconium to Lystria, uh, to Lyconia, and persuaded people in both places to stone him. It's hard not to imagine that Paul himself was reminded of the days in which he pursued your people and killed them. It's hard to not imagine that perhaps he understood that he and his sin is what hung you on that cross. And that's what kept him going. That the Lord, who he once persecuted, died for him. So now he counts all things as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing you, Jesus. Help this reality be true in our hearts. Let us not be persuaded by the false gods that shout every day of the week, luring us to themselves. They're fake, they're dead, they're vain, they're not real. 
Help us realize and understand that only you, through your cross, can give us the longing we actually do truly have. And let that love for you keep us going, no matter the cost, like Paul and Barnabas here in Acts 14. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.